Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, the people of God have waited and longed for somebody to deliver them from their sin. And God painted us a portrait, as He did His people in the Scriptures. He told us that the deliverer of the people will crush the head of the serpent. He will come from Abraham. He will be from the tribe of Judah. (coughs) He will be a prophet greater than Moses. He will be a son of David, as well as a son of God, whose kingdom and throne will be established forever. And as Matt has shown us in his preaching through the Old Testament, the Jews have asked one question repeatedly. Who will rule us? We saw that they wanted a king to rule them, and the kings were all not equipped. Then the judges and the prophets all came in an attempt to reconcile man to God. Now in Psalm 2 we find against this marvelous backdrop a psalm which speaks about the coronation of a king, a great king. As Psalm 2 started to unfold in the history of Israel, they saw that this king would not be a human king, as all of the human kings did not live up to this psalm. Think of the coronation of King Charles a few weeks ago. This psalm should have invoked emotions in the people of God. And yet, as the days became dark, they realized that they can no longer look back to the days of David and the kings, but rather they needed to look forward to a greater king whose throne wouldn't be in Jerusalem, but rather in the heavens. So as we heard last week, Psalm 1 speaks about these two ways, one which leads to righteousness and the other leading to judgment. Psalm 2 builds on the first psalm, as both form an introduction to the psalms as a whole. When we read these two psalms together, we see that pagan peoples or kings scheme to attack God and His Messiah. Last week we saw that Jesus is the road of righteousness, the incarnate word of God, and all those who follow Him will be blessed. Yet Psalm 1 never told us who the wicked were, the wicked in whose counsel the blessed ones should not sit. In Psalm 2, we find out who these are. The wicked are now those nations and leaders who are in rebellion to God and His Messiah. Together, these two Psalms show us the centrality of the Word of God in the life of God's people, and it also causes us to hope in the future deliverance of the Messiah. Psalm 1 showed us Christ as the way of the righteous, and today we will see Jesus being this Messiah King who will rule the nations. And this is the title for the sermon today, Jesus is the Promised Messiah King. One of the reasons why Matt decided to do the Psalm series is because for many of us it is really difficult to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and even in the Psalms. And so my goal today, and for the rest of the coming weeks, is to show you Christ, to show you Jesus. And today I really want us to see Jesus in the Psalm. This will be done by four important points, and in each of these points I want us to see something. First point, see the international conspiracy against God and His Messiah. The first thing I want you to see today is the international conspiracy against God and His Messiah. 
So picture with me, if you want, a massive gathering of global leaders, let's say something like the UN. One leader stands up, and because of his great military power, his great economic power, his great technology, he seeks to impose his will on everybody there. And as he tells the people this, you can hear murmurs in the crowd as many of the other local global leaders are dissatisfied with what this leader is trying to do. How arrogant is this leader who thinks that he has dominion over us? We are our own leaders of our own nations. Why does this leader think that he can have authority over us? It's quite a contemporary scene if you think about it. It's one that's frequently replayed in in history. We can think of many such examples. The opening section of Psalm 2 describes just like this, an international conspiracy. Yet, unlike the one I painted, this conspiracy is against God and His Messiah. Unlike an evil ruler like Hitler or someone, these people are conspiring against the God of the universe. Verse 1 gives us two verbs, if you want to follow with me in your Bibles. Verse 1 gives us two verbs on how these nations respond to God's rule. They rage and they plot in vain. I find it interesting that David doesn't tell us these nations rage and they plot in vain. He asks a question. He's he's astonished at what these nations are doing. Why do these gentle nations rage and plot in vain? David is amazed and astonished that the people and the leaders of earth would rebel against God. It's such a stupid and foolish thing to do. I find it quite interesting that the word for meditate in Psalm 1 is the same word used in Psalm 2 for plot. As the righteous meditate on the word of God, the wicked meditate in how to overthrow God. Psalm 1 tells us that the righteous or the blessed man meditate on the word of God. And those who are wicked, the Hebrew literally says they meditate on emptiness. They meditate on emptiness. Verse 2 tells us that they not only shake their fists against God and plot in this empty way to overthrow God, but they also take a public stand against Yahweh and His Messiah. I mean, the irony in this is very clear. The kings of the earth is trying to set themselves against the king of heaven. The council of the wicked that we see in Psalm 1 are now coming together and conspiring to see how they can take a stand against God. How foolish. I mean, how foolish thing for man to think that they can conspire to take a stand against the God that created them. What do they say? They don't only conspire, they say something. In verse 3, we read that they seek to throw the chains and ropes. The original speaks of chains and ropes being thrown off. This is the image that we see of a yoke being placed on animals for service. This is how the wicked see the authority of God in their lives. They cannot stand it. God's authority is something that needs to be thrown off. It needs to be rejected. The Lordship of Christ And his authority is something to be thrown off, to cast off. The wicked want nothing more but independence from God. 
this is quite familiar if you think about it. Just, just think about our age of independence and freedom. Just think about William Wallace in Braveheart, where with his last breaths, you know, shouting cries of freedom. Many of you are from the U.S. Just think about the rallying cry attributed to Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. These are stirring moments. I mean, stirring words. And often freedom from oppression is something worth dying for, which is why Jesus died for us. To give us freedom, to give us freedom from the oppression of sin. Yet our society believes that it can be happy when they're free from the Christ who bought their freedom for them. People seek to throw the bonds of Christ's lordship off of them in an attempt to be free. The Lord told us how marriage should look. And our society just casts those chains off as a burden. He told us what sin is. He told us what to do with sin. He told us how to repent and believe. Yet our society rages, clasps their fists and shakes it at the authority of God's lordship. We live in a society that meditates on emptiness daily. Who seeks nothing more than to cast the yoke of Christ off of them. Not realizing that the yoke of Christ, his burden, is easy. And his yoke is light. But this passage ultimately reveals the heart of every unbeliever. Whenever a Christian opens his mouth about the gospel, whenever we tell people about the authority or the lordship of Christ, what unbelievers hear is yoke being placed upon them. Just think about this. Whenever we speak about marriage or raising children or sin, the massive flare-up or tantrum temper tantrum that's being thrown is them seeing us placing a burden on them when we tell them that Jesus is Lord. In Acts 4, Peter tells us how these verses are fulfilled. Peter tells us that this conspiracy that we see here in Psalm 2 were the same people that conspired against Christ. Peter says that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and even the people of Israel all conspire together to crucify the Son of God. This was the ultimate act of shaking their fists in defiance of the sky God. We see that those who reject Christ and His Lordship will kill the Word of God in an attempt to reject God's authority and Lordship. If you thought that these vain plots were just vain threats, that this emptiness led to nothing, you would be sorely mistaken. We see in Scripture that although these plots are in vain because they're against God, these threats are not in vain. They will indeed kill the Word of God if they can. These threats are not vain, and we as Christians should be ready as the world conspires against us. But how does God respond to these people? Well, verse 4 tells us, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. And this is the second thing I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the God who laughs with indignation. See the God who laughs with indignation. So in the first two verses, it describes the earthly kings who plot and conspire. And verse 3 tells us what they say. It gives us their speech. Now verses 4 and 5 will tell us what the heavenly king's response is. 
And verse 6 will give us his speech. So how does this heavenly king respond to the plots of earthly kings? Well, it tells us that he laughs. He literally ridicules the foolish leaders who try to stand against them. He holds them in derision. One commentator notes that God does not even rise from his throne as he laughs. He doesn't even stand up to these threats of these men. He just sits in the heavens and he laughs. He also announces how he will respond to these rebels. He will speak to them in his anger. This is a horrifying reality if we think about this. Horrifying judgment is on the way for those who trifle with God. This is really scary given the current state of the world. If we think about it, if God responds in anger to those who seek to cast the burdens of his lordship away, there's a lot of people who will face horrifying judgment if they do not turn and repent. It is a scary thought that God will not remain sitting. He will not remain laughing. He will respond in anger and he will respond in wrath. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 1 where he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without an excuse. We see in Romans 1, as we do in Romans 2, that those who reject God are fools. They claim to be wise. They think they are the rulers. They think they are the kings. They think they have authority. Yet God laughs at their foolishness. And verse 6 tells us how God will respond in speech. The rulers claim they will throw off the chains of God's sovereign rule in verses 2 and 3. Yet God simply responds, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Here we see a strong contrast. We see what the kings of earth plan to do. We will throw these chains off. We will plot. We will conspire. Yet God says, I have already established my king. You can continue to plot in vain. Yet I have already done this. This declaration, I have installed my king on Zion, is, a def- is definitive and decisive. God has done this here and now. It's fixed and settled. God's promise to David and to his people cannot be thoughted, even by those who seek to defy his kingly rule, even by those who try to throw off the authority which God has. And this verse should give us great assurance as believers. God's plans cannot be changed, cannot be stopped. I mean, we see this. Herod, the Gentiles, they all tried to kill Jesus. They thought this was the way to stop. And what happened? Jesus, well, he was resurrected and ascended at the right hand of God the Father. God's plan is fixed. God's plan will not change as God cannot change his mind. This is a great assurance for us as believers. As this world seeks our ruin, as this world seeks to conspire against us as believers, we have a great God who holds us. We have a great assurance in heaven as a God whose plans cannot be thwarted. 
Thirdly then, see the Son who reigns. See the Son who reigns. In verse 7, we read, follow with me. The Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. This King, this Messiah King, has received a word from the Lord Himself, declaring a special father-son relationship, unlike any other father-son relationship that the history of the world has ever seen. And so when we look at the first seven verses in the psalm, we can clearly see the stability of Jesus' kingdom. Firstly, we've seen that God is the one who establishes Jesus as His Messiah King. Secondly, we see that God's plans are fixed. Even if the nations rage, God's plan cannot be changed. And now thirdly, we see that God's plan in His Messiah is fixed because of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus isn't just one of God's adopted sons like we are. We are adopted sons. He is begotten of the Father, which means He is of the same nature and attributes as God the Father. God tells His Son in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Everything is Christ. We see the universal dominion of Jesus. The ends of the earth are His. Everything that we see and cannot even see is His. His rule will not be Gentile though. We see that His rule comes with a warning to the nations that seek to rebel against Him. The king will rule them with an iron rod or an iron scepter and he will smash them as a potter breaks up pottery. It's defective. This is a scary image of divine judgment. And it also emphasizes the fragility of us as humans. Our human seemingly great nations are really fragile when they stand before God. Those who oppose God and seek to throw off these chains of authority are like fragile pieces of pottery who will be smashed in pieces if they keep on rejecting the Messiah. And as I reflected on this passage during this week, I realized we as modern Christians make a massive mistake when we view Jesus as baby Jesus, meek and mild. I mean, we see nativity scenes during Christmas time, or perhaps we see Jesus helpless on a cross on images. Besides these images being a violation of the second commandment, they also paint a very twisted picture of our Messiah. We don't see him as Jesus, meek and mild, lying in a manger on a cross in these pictures. We see a Jesus who's coming back at whose, whose knee every, at every knee will bow before him. Jesus is coming back and every knee will bow, either willfully or forcefully. He will come back with an iron rod and those who receive and worship Him will bow down. And those who reject His authority will have to bow down forcefully. He will smash their kneecaps in submission to Him. And Revelation makes it clear that Psalm 2 refers to Jesus. As John tells us, the heavens open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like flame of fire and his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Speaking of Jesus in this way might make you incredibly uncomfortable. This is the reality of the God we worship. This is the reality of His authority over the nations. What about us who receive Christ? Well, Revelation tells us that the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he, speaking of us, will rule them with an iron rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. So we will rule with Christ when he returns. This means that we will share in the rule of Christ over the nations. We will rule with an iron rod like Christ. We will receive our authority from him as he receives his authority from the Father. And you know, as I reflect on this, I realize for many of us, the reality is we'll probably see Christ when we see him in death, be with him in heaven. For many of us, that's our hope. But just imagine the day when he appears, sitting on a white horse, his eyes like a flame, armies of heaven in fine linen. will be glorious and terrifying. But we have a great hope that awaits us. Fourthly, see those who are blessed who respond to salvation's invitation. See those who are blessed who respond to salvation's invitation. So far we've seen that in the face of God's sovereign purpose, His plans and His power, there is only one way in which we could respond according to David. According to David, we see the kings and the rulers of the earth raging and plotting against the Son of God. Now we see in verse 10, He, David, telling the kings to be wise. Listen up, kings. Listen up, judges. I have something to say. Be wise. The kings of the earth need to be schooled like elementary school children. They need to be taught what it means to be wise decision makers in order to be blessed. In essence, these kings need to become wise like the person in Psalm 1. What does this look like? In verse 11, we see that humanity and the nations would be wise to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The wise person will worship the Lord. He will serve Him as he meditates on God's law, as we saw in Psalm 1. This is probably the greatest title we as Christians could ever receive. The title of servant of the Lord. 
our loyalty being to Him and no one else, Him being our only Lord, our only King, serving Him with fear and trembling. This is quite an interesting phrase in in verse 11, speaking of our worship being in rejoicing and trembling. You know, for many of us, we, we think of rejoicing or worship as something joyful and trembling as something scary or bad. But we need to remember that worship of God is something completely different than a a sort of pep rally for Jesus. It's different than going to your favorite football game and being psyched up about what you see, what's about to happen. God is not one of our favorite sport teams. It's not a pep rally. He is God. And as we worship Him, we should rejoice, but it should be in awe of Him. If we see God rightly and we worship Him rightly... We should tremble at the sight of Him. Much like the gospel though, when we are confronted with sin on the one hand and the light of who God is and His majesty on the other hand, this psalm confronts us with the foolishness and the darkness of humanity and sin, the impending judgment of God. But in verse 12 we also find an invitation to be saved. A glorious invitation. Verse 12 essentially calls those who rebel against God and His Messiah to repent. It's a call to be saved. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. The wise are instructed to honor the Son or kiss the Son. This is what the imagery with kissing is is being invoked here by David. Kissing here speaks of allegiance to a king. Think think about the movies where people kiss the ring of, of the king. It's allegiance to the king. It means he is your only king. There is no one else. But kissing also points to affection. We should not only submit to God and his commands. We should not only have allegiance to King Jesus. But our affections, our desires, should be drawn to Him in worship. He should be precious to us. And thirdly, kissing also reveals and evokes this image of reconciliation. Someone wouldn't allow you to kiss them if they were angry with you. I mean, most of us can attest to that. Your wives would pull away their cheek if you tried to kiss them during an argument. So it points to this reconciliation which occurs when we submit to the Lordship of Christ, when we desire Him above everything else, we are reconciled to Him in love. We will indeed be blessed like the person in Psalm 1 when we put our trust in the Christ, in the Messiah of our Lord. In this final point, we see that God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule the nations. So the nations must know and be challenged to follow Him. This is One of the greatest reasons why we should go and tell the nations. We should warn people. Bow down at the feet of Christ and kiss Him. We should call people to repent and kiss the Son in order to escape His anger. Reading passages like this should give us both a great comfort knowing that us, we're united to Christ, are blessed. We're going to rule the nations with Him. But this should also lead us to share the gospel with our friends our neighbors, our co-workers. If they don't, they will, they will taste the wrath of, of His anger. 
if we love our friends, if we love our neighbors, if we love our family members, we will tell them to bow down and kiss the sun. Now, as we draw to a close today and reflect on this dual introduction to our psalm series, we see that Psalm 1 verse 1 starts with blessedness. Blessed is the man. And Psalm 2.12 ends with blessedness. Blessed is the man and blessed are those, blessed are the nations. The private world of the first psalm essentially opens up into this public world of the second. The personal is followed by the cosmic. The domestic, if you want, is followed by the international call to walk the road of the righteous. We see that the blessed man of Psalm 1, Jesus, is ultimately fulfilled in the revelation of this Messiah King in Psalm 2. The righteous who are blessed in Psalm 1 are the humble who trust in the King of Psalm 2. And the wicked scoffers in Psalm 1, in whose counsel we are not to sit, are the foolish nations who rebel against the authority of our Lord in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 we saw ultimately finds its perfect fulfillment in Christ, the revealed, will, the revealed Word of God. And Psalm 2, this Messiah King, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation, as we read this morning, beautifully develops the, the trajectories of Psalm 2. We see that those who take refuge in Him, the blessed ones of Psalm 2, are those who will share the nations, who will rule the nations, as we're told in Revelation. Revelation 19 reminds us that the one who comes on the white horse, who will be King of kings and Lord of lords, will dash his enemies to pieces. He's coming back to judge with the sword in his mouth. The king we read about in Psalm 2 who will rule the nations is Jesus. He is our hope as Christians. As we sit today, I want us to think about of if, are you ready to face the Son? Are you ready to face Jesus when He returns? Because He will return. But not as baby Jesus, meek and mild. He will come back with a sword in His mouth. He will come back with an iron rod. And every knee will bow before Him. And this threat of judgment is not meant to scare you or unbelievers into the kingdom of God. Although... It definitely should encourage us to witness to them. But we should realize, us who call ourselves Christians, that there is a cost involved in following Jesus. As He laid down His life for us and laid down His freedoms for us, we should take His yoke, which is easy, and His burden, which is light upon us, His authority, His Lordship, and bow down to kiss the Son. And as we end today, I would say it's similar to how we ended last week. We ended last week with two forks in the road. Again, today we see two lives. We see two ways in which we can go. We can either take refuge in Him and be blessed, bow down the knee and kiss the Son, or refuse His authority, seek to throw away the chains and receive His anger and perish in our rebellion. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow. 
There is no better place to begin than at his feet. Kiss the Son and trust him. Kiss the Son and serve him. Kiss the Son and adore him above all else. I will challenge us today all to bow the knee and kiss the Son. Let's pray.